and welcome back to the game week edition of the dog and duck show it doesn't matter that the mariners are playoff bound it doesn't matter that the seahawks have named a starting quarterback all that matters is that my dogs and your ducks are back in action this weekend mark i already know the answer to this question but how are you doing my friend I am on cloud nine, Warren. It is the most wonderful time of the year. And by time of the year, I mean the next four months because <laughs> uh, we are back into uh, college football. We had a little a little tease over the weekend. If you were a Nebraska fan or a Northwestern fan, you had oh, a little yeah. more riding on it. But for the rest of us, it was just kind of something to, uh, to kind of wet the whistle a little bit. But now, uh, a full schedule of games, both of our teams taking the field uh, for the first time, questions to be answered, and I could not be more excited to get this season underway. No, this is, you know, this is kid the day before Christmas type feeling for me right now. I'm thinking about everything that I wrote on my list and sent to Santa Claus and just praying that I've been a good boy all year long. But to your point, I was watching the Huskies this past weekend, the Connecticut Huskies, play against Utah State because I just was hungry for some college football and it is back baby so really excited to get into it and uh yeah Mark I mean yeah as, as you think about uh all that you guys have kind of endured to get through to this season you know like what what is your kind of what, what is your kind of one word synopsis of how you're feeling right now? Uh, the one word I would use is energy. I think uh, the way that Oregon ended last season lacked mm. a certain energy. Their loss, both of their losses to Utah, their bowl game performance against Oklahoma, and each of those games, they were a, a team, they were a dead team walking. Mm. And with an entirely new coaching staff coming in, and they've made waves in the recruiting cycle, they've had fun position camp battles or, or uh, position battles at, at training camp. And I just think there is an energy attached to this season, attached to the youthfulness of the coaching staff. And so that, that would be the one word that I would use to, to kind of summarize my feelings towards this team. I'm just looking to see how that energy, you know, plays itself out on the field. What, what would be your word right now for uh, a Washington program that's uh that's coming in uh, after one of the rougher seasons of our lifetime. Yeah, very, very similar. My word is juice. And, you know, I feel like there is a juice in this team right now that had just been sucked dry through the four and eight John Donovan, Jimmy Lake fiasco to losing, you know, Junior Adams to losing out on big time recruits now it feels like life has been you know resuscitated in this husky program there's some juice uh, moving into this game and uh, man couldn't be more excited so we're going to get into week one two very different game scenarios for both of our teams but before we do just a little bit of dog and duck news outside of uh outside of the the, the game specific conversation. So in the world of, of dog news, I think probably 
you know, the, the big couple big things. One, the Huskies have named their starting quarterback last week. Uh, Kalen DeBoer, Ryan Grubb uh, named Michael Penix Jr. as the starting quarterback. Not a big surprise there. Of course, we knew the incumbent Dylan Morris and Sam Heward were uh, given a fair opportunity, but uh, Michael Penix comes with the most game experience, the most experience in DeBoer's uh, offense, and certainly uh, you know has the chops, has proven it on a big time level that he can win. And so I think that that was not a big surprise. But then just this morning, the uh, the the Husky depth chart was released, and most of it fell the way that I think we probably predicted it. Uh, the transfer Wayne Talapapa, um, I still got to get his name figured out exactly, but I think it's Tala Papa Wayne Tala Papa. I think his nickname is Big Papa. So Big Papa is going to be the starting running back uh, for this Husky team. Uh, of course, Jackson Kirkland not going to be playing this Saturday because of an NCAA uh, one week suspension due to his pulling out for the draft and then coming back in. And then really exciting news for the Huskies. Ulumu Ale, who was the offensive lineman that converted to defensive tackle, he got injured at the practice that I covered a couple of weeks ago. And there was a lot of question about whether or not uh, that was a very serious injury. Uh, but he is listed as the starter for this Saturday. So that's big time news. And then Taj Davis, the uh, 2021 spring game hero, uh, has uh, grabbed a starting spot from Jalen Polk. And that that really comes as a surprise. But I really like what I've seen from Taj Davis in his limited opportunity. So I think it's a, a, a great opportunity for him to really uh, fulfill his potential on this team. But exciting stuff. Really looking forward to getting into our game preview. Mark, any uh, duck news that uh, you need to cover? Well, I think the news is the, is the lack of news. I am I am jealous of you that you have a depth chart to pour over in the days leading up to the game because Dan Lanning has has been mum on uh, announcing any sort of starters, especially uh, starters at the quarterback position, uh, and uh, he is just kind of said flat out, well, I don't see how that is an advantage to us too. You know, that's so funny because that is exactly what Jimmy Lake did last year. I mean, I, I read the quote from Dan Lanning and you could almost match it up word for word with the way that Jimmy Lake, you know, approached that same scenario. And yeah. I, I, it was funny. I actually saw Kirby Smart said, we know who the starting exactly exactly yeah i think similar to michael Penix coming in and already having an established relationship with the coaching staff how it kind of felt uh like it was only a matter of time before he would be named as the starter very similar situation with bo Nix. he's already played under Ken kenny dillingham was his offensive coordinator at auburn so i i would be shocked if bo Nix is not the one taking snaps uh in the first series uh, but I wouldn't be shocked if if uh, we see multiple quarterbacks take snaps at some point during the game. You know, if if Bo Nix is struggling, then there maybe is a scenario where where they give Ty Thompson a look. But I'm I'm 
fully expecting Bo Nix to be the first one um, to get a shot this Saturday. Well, that's a, that's a great segue. So we're, we're talking, we're looking ahead. Like I mentioned, these are two very different opening games. The Huskies are at home. They're playing Kent state, a decent uh, Mac team, but certainly a team that everyone expects they should be able to, to handle quite easily. The, the ducks, as we know, they are in a neutral site location, but really on the road against the defending national champion, uh, the University of Georgia. And, um, you know, so so I wanted to just kind of take some time to kind of talk about maybe some things that we're thinking, some things that we're feeling and wondering and 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 look at the game from each of that perspective. So so, Mark, you mentioned that you believe Bo Nix is going to get the opening snaps. And yet at the same time, you said you're not, you wouldn't be surprised if another quarterback also gets snaps. And so I guess maybe the first question that I would ask you is, is that something that you want to see? Like what, what do you want to see from your team in game one going up against the national champions? Because I don't know if testing out quarterbacks and rotating is really a winning formula against the defending national champion well i i have pretty much always been of the mind that if you have two quarterbacks you have zero quarterbacks you know right that, i mean that's uh, kind of the saying right that rota rotating quarterbacks especially in a big game is never something that i'm excited to see uh having said that one of the landmark wins for the University of Oregon was in the early 2000s when they hosted Michigan at the time. I think Michigan was ranked maybe in the top five or the top 10, a uh, very highly ranked Michigan team. And Oregon, uh, this was just after the Joey Harrington era wrapped up. And so they were splitting reps between Jason Fife and Kellen Clemens. And they scored the major upset at home over Michigan with those two guys basically each getting two series at a time and coming in, they had their own package of plays. That was a little different feel though, in that Kellen Clemens was kind of the mobile quarterback and Jason Fife was the pocket passer. And it was, it was very much a chess match. I don't, I don't see there being some sort of like strategic element of why they would be playing both guys. I more am, am looking at it from the perspective of if, if we're seeing a second quarterback, it's probably because the first one, didn't play particularly well. Mm -hmm. And so my, no, my hope would not be to see two quarterbacks getting a lot of reps. Um, I, my hope is that whoever starts the game plays well enough to be there at the end and, and stays healthy enough to be there at the end. So uh, that would be, that would be my hope um, kind of on a broader picture in terms of what am I wanting to see from Oregon? It's yeah. uh, I, th I think, uh, you know, I mentioned the energy off the top, uh, I want to see an Oregon team that is not intimidated in the moment, that is not intimidated by playing against the defending national champs in their own city. Uh, so I'm really curious, like uh, in the first quarter, how does Oregon look? Are they flying around to the ball? Are they excited to be in a game of this magnitude or do they look a little gun shy? Do they, do they look like a team that's maybe not quite ready for the moment? So that that's the biggest thing that I want to see is like, does this team see themselves as belonging in a game like this? Cause sometimes I think that's the, the final hurdle that has to overcome to, to be a truly great team. And so I want to see where they're at with that. 
right off the bat. Um, what so, um, you know, you want to see energy, you want to see guys flying around. Um, do you think, do you think that this is the kind of game that Dan Lanning is saying, Hey, we're, we're going to need to light it up on offense to be able to keep up. Or do you think that they're going to try to just clamp down and play more of a conservative defensive game? Like what, what do you want to see? And, you know, and maybe even like, what do you want to see if anything from Dan Lanning, the head coach? Yeah. So Last year when Oregon uh, went to Ohio State for their second game of the season, I think what I was especially impressed by is it felt like Oregon had the better game plan on both sides of the ball, that mm-hmm. they were just more prepared. They kind of had the number of Ohio State. Part of that was Joe Moorhead, Oregon's offensive coordinator at the time, had been at Penn State before, had competed against Ohio State, kind of had an idea of how he wanted to attack them. Um, Dan Lanning... Uh, you know, theoretically has some familiarity with this Georgia defense. They've lost a lot of talent from last year's historically great defense. I'm sure the guys that they have coming in, while less experienced, also have plenty of talent. Uh, But I'm hoping that Dan Lanning is able to bring some insight as to, okay, if we're going to attack this defense, what are what are the areas where we can do that where where are their yards to be found even if they're you know in small clusters um Mm -hmm. and so i'm hoping that he can lend a little bit of his expertise about the georgia defense to kenny dillingham and the offensive staff as they're putting together you know a game plan uh on the other side of the ball i think um my hope is is that Oregon's defense is able to set a tone because Georgia's offense was not some sort of, you know, juggernaut like we'd seen from national champions in prior years from Alabama or LSU. Georgia's Mm -hmm. offense, like Stetson Bennett was very much the game manager type quarterback who would make three or four critical plays at critical times, you know, to kind of help engineer scoring drives. But this was not a team that lit up teams offensively and so I'm hoping that Oregon's defense which has players which has guys that mm-hmm. that um it's got should talent, be able to, no doubt. to stack yeah. up you know on that side of the ball I'm hoping that they set a tone right off the bat of of you know we think we're the superior unit and so I because I think that's the only way this really becomes a game is if Oregon's defense gets the upper hand on the Georgia offense and and kind of reins them in. If Georgia's offense moves the ball at will early in the game, that's a really bad sign for right. Oregon being able to, to hang in there. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, especially in a situation like that, you've got you've to gotta get some turnovers on the defense, maybe a special team, like a blocked punt or something like that. Uh, because I think just head-to-head, this – this Georgia team has more cohesion from the coaching staff down. Um, and obviously as talented as Oregon is, Georgia is more talented. Um, so it's probably the only game this year that Oregon's going to be at the under matched, you know, team in terms of pure raw talent. Um, so the coaching will really, I think, be the, the critical piece for this Oregon team. 
going, you know, going into this game. But I think, I mean, you know, I think most realistic Oregon fans are not expecting a win. So even if this team comes up short, uh, will there be some things that if you say, hey, if I see this, then I, I feel like we're good. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I want to say Georgia is like a, like a 17 point favorite or something like that. I might have that um, a little off, but I was, I was struck by how significant of a favorite. Uh, yeah. They're 17 point favorite coming in. So I think for my expectations for Oregon is like, I want them in the game going into the fourth quarter. Like if, if I'm watching as, as the quarter turns from third to fourth, I want to be watching with some sense of, okay, we just need to get a stop here or, okay, we just need to put together a scoring drive here and we're okay. Mm -hmm. Like I want there to be some, I, I don't want life to be drained out of the game by that point in time. I, I want to see a game that goes into the fourth quarter with them, you know, trading punches. And um, I, you know, my, my gut feeling says, I think they can hang within 17 of Georgia. I don't, I, and, and on the other hand, um, they are the defending national champs. And so mm -hmm. if they win 34 to 17, you know, that wouldn't be a total shock. So, uh, so it'll be, it'll be interesting, but that, that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm at. So Warren, let, let me uh, turn this question around to you. You know, we talked about these teams are facing obviously very different openers. Oregon is starting their season against maybe the best team in the country, certainly the best team that they're going to play all season. Uh, on the other side, Washington is starting with Kent State, a mid-major from the Mid-American Conference. Uh, one's initial thought on this might be, oh, they're kind of easing their way in. They've got Kent State, they've got Portland State, and then they've got the big showdown with, with Michigan State in week three. That's kind of the measuring stick game for them. But Kent State, uh, I saw today, is the preseason favorite to win their division in the Mid-American Conference. This is a team that has been a consistent bowl team for the last couple of years. So this isn't exactly like a game where Washington should just be able to take the field and, and roll to a win regardless. Uh, this is a team that, that can do some things. They, they, they have their own you know, strengths and weaknesses that have to be accounted for. So what are you wanting to see recognizing how Washington uh, had you know, the season that they had last year? What are you wanting to see from your team in this first game against Kent State? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a, a great game to start up the, off the season because this is a team that has a really dynamic offense. They run a lightning flash. That You know, the Kent State golden flashes yes. have an, an offense that matches that description because they run as many as 100 plays on offense per game. And so that's going to test the conditioning of these players. I think it's also going to create a really unique opportunity for the defense to get a lot of plays for the roster, which means that we could see, you know, the first, second, third, even four string guys getting meaningful action simply because the, the team is running so many plays, which is great for Washington as long as we win the game. Right. Or can't take that for granted, especially after the Montana uh, fiasco of last year. But that being said, I think what I want to see is on on defense, 
what I'm hearing and what I'm looking forward to, what I want to see is I want to see a lot of uh, a lot of Husky players behind the line of scrimmage getting tackles for losses and sacks. And Mark, I'm I'm not super concerned if they give up a touchdown or you know a 30-yard play here or there if they're getting behind the line of scrimmage and creating some of those you know long down and distance type scenarios because i think that type of pressure is going to to really you know create the kind of turnovers and uh you know punt situations that that this husky team has been missing the last several years with its bend but don't break mentality and then on offense very similar i want to see an offense that looks like it's getting the job done in an easy way. And, and I think for most Husky fans, you know what I'm talking about. Last year, and really for the last two or three years, it has seemed like everything that we did on offense was really hard. We couldn't really get first downs easily. There were no easy touchdowns. It was just grueling work to move the ball down the field. And if we did score, it felt like we had to use, you know, every right play and right pass to get it to work, to, to get to that conclusion. I want to see a scheme where guys are getting open and they're just gashing this really weak Kent State defense uh, for massive gains, not because they're just, bigger stronger and faster but because the scheme is creating those opportunities for the team so i think that's that's what i really want to see obviously like you i want to see energy i want to see that these guys you know i think i think in a game like this you want to see energy and execution you don't want to just see energy and a bunch of dumb mistakes you want to see that energy but also execution that they're they're making the right play most of the time is uh does the score matter in a game like this to you like if if uh if washington wins this game by seven points will that have a negative taste in your mouth regardless of how well they play like do you feel like well if they're if they're going to play as well as they can play they're going to win this game by three touchdowns. Like does, does that kind of thing matter to you? Or is it more that you're kind of honed in on some of these, these other indicators. And if you can look at it and say, Hey, we got, we got good penetration in the backfield. We didn't commit these dumb penalties, you know, and Kent state was just, you know, probably better than people thought, like, you know, how, how yeah. much of that do you put into the, the final score? I think that the, the score does matter. But what I'm really kind of more concerned about is I want to see what the score is in the first quarter and at halftime. Okay. Because, you know, I think we we would like to think and believe that there's enough talent and depth and, and bodies that at the end of the game, talent will break through and will pile up a lot of points. But, but when both teams are fresh, when both play, teams are putting their starters out there, um, does this Husky team show that it is the superior team? And so I would love to see this team start off, you know, with 
21-0 in the first quarter or 21-7 in the first quarter, maybe up 35 to 14 or 17 at halftime, something like that. At the end of the game, if it turns out to be like 45 to 32, I'm not really that worried about it because it probably means that we put in some second, third string guys and, you know, they they kept playing their guys to get more experience for them. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm looking for is I want to see that the the first half when, you know, Kent State really believes that it's got the the chance to win. I want to see them just get crushed. Yeah. So what you're really wanting to avoid is you're wanting to avoid the text from me at halftime like you got during the Montana game last year, which is saying... Uh, Without a shadow of a doubt. What is going on? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I mean, that just... That was just... The, you know, the, the Montana Grizzlies played that game like the Seattle Seahawks when they were going to the Super Bowl. They just stayed in it. They played sound defense. They kept it close. And in the fourth quarter, they made a couple of plays and they came out on top. And that should have never happened because, you know, John Donovan and Jimmy Lake were trying to play the same game, but they were the dominant team. They yeah. should have been stomping on the throat of that Grizzly team. But instead, they were playing it close, keeping it into the fourth quarter, which just proved to be a historically bad game plan so this is a uh, step one in exercising the demons of montana is uh is getting a win over kent state to uh to start the season off on a much better note for for the huskies without a shadow of doubt and so i mean you know i'll be honest that like that's the thing that i'm most nervous about is that slow start yeah that you know we're just gonna come out and we're going to get some offsides penalty, holding penalty. We've got a punt. You know, we give up a, a guy that's not covered and he gets a long touchdown pass. You know, there's some kind of gap on a special teams play and this thing is closer than it needs to be. That's what I'm nervous about, especially in the first half. Um, but what about you, Mark? You know, obviously you're going up against a Goliath of sorts. But what are you nervous about uh, as a, a Duck fan, you know, walking into this game? Yeah, I think if I'm if if I'm given some truth serum and I have to be really honest, uh, I would say that the the inexperience of the Oregon coaching staff as a whole um, is is something that I have in the back of my mind as a concern, you know, which is that Kenny Dillingham, he has been an offensive coordinator before, but it's always been with an established coaching mind uh, who's really kind of the one that's that's pulling the strings. It was Gus Malzahn at Auburn. It was uh, Mike Norvell at Memphis and Florida State. So this is Kenny Dillingham's first time where he is he is the main chef in the kitchen, you know, dialing up the plays and and thinking strategically about how to attack the defense. On the defensive side, Dan Lanning is you know he's been a defensive coordinator, but that was a defensive coordinator under. Kirby Smart, who was, you know, again, kind of the guy that that is the engineer of that Georgia defense. So now it's Dan Lanning and Tosh Lapoy as his defensive coordinator. He's never been a defensive coordinator, I don't think, at any level. Um, so 
I, you know, I have some questions in my mind as to how does this team, uh, you know, how does this coaching staff in particular uh, handle the, the moment in the, in the actual game? I have every confidence that this coaching staff has done a good job up to this point, getting this mm-hmm. team ready. They've been around enough successful programs that I'm sure they know which drills to do and how to break down and grade film and, you know, how to build a positive culture and all that stuff. I I don't question any of that. It's the heat of the moment. It's when things are going haywire, like how do you settle? How do you make adjustments? How do you kind of figure out the thing that the other team is doing like uh, and, and throw them off balance? We don't really have much of a track record on this coaching staff on that front. And so that is, that is probably the thing that if I'm, if I'm just confessing it to you, uh, mm-hmm. that I'm most nervous about. And, and I, I mean, that makes sense. And, you know, if we're being honest, that has to be a concern is, Hey, what is this brand new head coach going to do when the bullets are flying in really the most intimidating game of the year, whether yeah. it's the most important that that's probably not true, but it is the most intimidating game of the year. I think if I'm a Duck fan, the thing that I'm most nervous about is coming out of this game healthy and with some positivity intact. I mean, that would be my biggest concern is, you know, if your starting quarterback, you know, gets a concussion or worse or, you know, uh, you know, God forbid, um, Justin Flo gets knocked out again for the season that would be, you know, the thing that I would be concerned about is going up against this physically dominant team and coming out of it really feeling like, okay, we we hung in there, we went toe-to-toe with these guys, but also we're game tested and we're still ready for the rest of the season. Yeah. Well, now you've got me nervous on multiple levels, Warren. <laughs> well, that's part of my my job. So, uh, you know, and I know you do a good job of keeping me nervous and on my toes as well. So we'll we'll flip it around now. We talked about what do you want to see from your team? What do you, you know, what are you nervous about? But what are you excited about? Like, is there is there some aspect about this team that you feel like this is going to be special? This is going to be, um, something either in this game or in this this team or this season that you feel like this is something that we're going to look back on and go, yeah, that was a great, you know, a great thing that we could celebrate or a sign of good things to come. What what are you excited about? Yeah, I think uh, anytime going into the first game of the season, I'm excited about the unknown in terms of which players that are going to become a household name by the end of the year that I don't know about, you know, Oregon has major uh, shoes to fill big shoes to fill at the running back position and at the receiver position. And I think they have a cast of capable guys to do that. But in terms of which guy kind of, kind of plants that flag that's yet to be determined. And so I'm excited to see who is the back that emerges, who are the receivers that emerge as kind of the go-to targets on third down um on the on the defensive side i i think uh you know i'm obviously i'm i'm curious what kind of new names prosper but it's really i'm excited to see hopefully a healthy season from especially from justin flow and noah sewell together 
at the mm-hmm. linebacker position because I think if those two guys are healthy, they they could be as good as any tandem of linebackers in the entire country. And Justin Flo last year had 14 tackles against Fresno State and then had a season-ending injury and didn't play again the rest of the year. That was after he missed this the entire season before that with an injury. So I would love nothing more than to see Justin Flo healthy playing alongside Noah Sewell, just wreaking havoc uh, for opposing teams. And if we get, you know, a glimpse of that on Saturday, that'll be really exciting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think if I'm, again, if I'm an Oregon fan, that's, that's what I would want to hang my hat on is this Oregon defense under a defensive minded coach like Dan Lanning, these guys are legit and they are going to wreak havoc on the vast majority of Pac-12 teams that they face this year. Um, so that, that would be the thing that I would be most excited about. For sure, for sure. What, um, how do you answer that question for you, Warren, looking at this uh, season opener for your Huskies? What are you most excited about? Yeah, I think uh, for the first time in really maybe since 2016, I think we've got uh, a wide receiver room that is really talented and they're just really just raring to, to bust out. And I think with this Kalen DeBoer, Ryan Grubb offense, uh, it's, it's an opportunity to really highlight these guys. And I don't think that they're getting a lot of respect on the national level because quite honestly, if you look at their statistics, there's nothing that would indicate that these guys are even halfway decent football players, but the eye test and their, their high school resume says something very different. I mean, these guys, uh, you know, Roma Dunze, six foot three and, you know, just a hundred meter dash champion and Jalen McMillan, one of the top high school uh, recruits six foot two, uh, Taj Davis six two, just solid receiver. Jalen Polk, tough over the middle receiver. Giles Jackson, exciting electric uh, jitterbug type of guy. There's just a lot of weapons that we have not seen in a long time, really since uh, John Ross and Dante Pettis uh, kind of took over the Pac-12 in 2016. But um, I mean, I think. That's the thing that I'm excited about. If if those guys are regularly putting up 100-yard receiving games, it's going to completely change the whole vibe on, on game day at Husky Stadium. 100%. And, you know, we've seen from Michael Penix, we got a glimpse of that, that one kind of wonderful year that Indiana had when he was healthy and he had a great cast of receivers who had some big games for him and he did a good job of, of distributing the ball. So I think that makes sense uh, with kind of the woefulness of the Huskies passing attack last season, that, uh, that that's an area where you're excited to see some guys have some breakouts. No doubt. And if, again, if those guys are doing it, then that means that Michael Penix is getting it done too. So it's kind of a win win on that. So Mark, any bold predictions for this game? Like, do you want to just, you know, point up to the stands and call your shot and say, Hey, 
the Ducks are coming back with a W against uh, the defending national champions? Um, you know, I, I last year with the, uh, the Ohio State game, I pretty much counted it as a loss in every conversation that I had about the Ducks season and then was delightfully surprised when they played as well as they played and got the win. So I want to, I want to take that same tact this year. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, shoot my mouth off about it. I'd much rather just assume that they're going to lose and then have them, you know, prove me wrong. Uh, but I'll give, I'll give a bold prediction of this. I, I think, uh, I think Oregon is going to have the lead at some point in the game. That could be in the first quarter. That could be at halftime. That could be late in the game. I think they're going to have the lead at some point in the game. And I think it's going to be a one possession game at some point in the fourth quarter. Okay. So, so, so I think now that could be wishful thinking a little bit, but I, I, I think it's, it's going to be interesting. That's, that's what I'm going to say. I I think it's going to have us, have us interested where there's going to be a point in the fourth quarter where Oregon either is a stop away or a drive away from, from really changing the tenor of the game. I would say that's a pretty bold prediction. Yeah. I mean, if they're a 17 point underdog, that's not, that's no guarantee either of those things that I just said. So, you know, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm expecting Oregon to play a little better than, than maybe the experts are expecting them to play. What, uh, what about you, Warren? Give me a bold prediction. And if you want to expand, expand this beyond the Kent State game, if you want to make a bold prediction about the season itself, you're, you're welcome to interpret this however you want. Yeah. So I, I mentioned the wide receivers. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to make a prediction that in in this game against Kent State that we're going to have at least 10 players who get at least one reception in this game. I like this. Okay. So, you know, whether that's five or six wide receivers, a couple running backs, a couple tight ends, but I think, you know, the, the Huskies are going to run a lot of plays similar to Kent State. I think they want to get a lot of guys some some game experience, some game action. Um, there's a you know if the game script goes the way that I think we hope it and expect it to go would go, uh, the 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 backup quarterback whether that's Dylan Morris or Sam Heward that's still kind of up in the air, but he'll get into the game you know by the fourth quarter and uh, there'll be opportunities for backups, but I think. I think we want to see those receivers, the star receivers get get fed. We want to see the tight ends get into the passing game. And then something that we really haven't seen in a long, long time, even with Jonathan Smith and, and Chris Peterson, uh, I think we're going to see more tight ends getting catches this year than maybe, I mean, maybe longer than any Husky fan can remember. So um, I'm predicting 10 plus receivers for this game. I'm, I'm making a note right now on our document here, Warren, that 
I I think we need to revisit these bold predictions. Okay. Week, you know, because I think both of us have have put something specific out there, um, and I we definitely need to revisit uh, both of these things because I think, I mean, if if they're if they're completing passes to ten different receivers, that's a really good sign for what the offense could look like going forward. No doubt, no doubt. All right, let's get into some of the other games of the week, both uh, nationally and Pac-12 related games. So, Mark, starting off with uh, this Thursday, the first game on the slate for us, West Virginia at number 17, Pitt. Uh, give us a little breakdown of what you're expecting to see in this game. Well, the two things about this game, first of all, it's the return of the backyard brawl, West Virginia-Pitt, longstanding rivalry that was uh, you know, put on hiatus when Pitt left the Big East and West Virginia was just kind of left left by themselves for a while and then landed in the big 12. But these two schools have a longstanding uh, rivalry that, that goes back many, many years. Uh, there was one year, I believe in 2007, when West Virginia came into the backyard brawl, ranked second in the nation. Uh, if they won that game, they were going to go to the national title game and, and pit that had a losing record. I think Dave Wanstead's pit team, beat West Virginia. So like just a great rivalry with a great history. Uh, but the, the wrinkle that I think I'm most interested in Warren is that both of the teams have former USC quarterbacks. You got JT Daniels for West Virginia and Keaton Slovis mm-hmm. for Pitt. Uh, so former Trojans all over the country playing quarterback, uh, Jackson dart at Ole Miss Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's one or two others that are out there somewhere. So Mark I'm, Sanchez has come back. He's got a little eligibility left over. Yeah, Mark Sanchez, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Gr- Graham Harrell, former offensive coordinator for USC, I believe is the offensive coordinator at West Virginia. So uh, the USC connection just kind of interests me. Uh, yeah, and I mean, speaking of the USC connection, Mark, you may know about, you may have a better idea on this, but, but Keaton Slovis, he comes to Pitt, and then Bolitnikoff Award winner Jordan Addison leaves right. and goes to USC. Right, right. I mean, that's got to just be the ultimate, you know, gut punch for Keaton Slovis to lose a receiver like that to the team that you just left. Yeah, incredible. And and uh, I mean, this is the the day and age, I guess, that we're in and in college football right now, but uh, Pitt, you know, for that reason, I think, you know, they lost uh, Kenny Pickett, who was a Heisman candidate. They lose him to the NFL. They lose their Blitnikoff winning receiver. To me, they seem this, this ranking, this top, top. They seem vulnerable. Yeah. It does not seem, um, they don't seem like a top 20 team to me. So. And Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Keaton Slovis beat out JT Daniels? Yeah, well, I think that's led JT Daniels to transfer to Georgia. To Georgia. And then JT he, Daniels loses to Stetson Bennett. Right. And now he's at West Virginia and now Keaton Slovis. So, I mean, Keaton Slovis has been a bit of a thorn in JD, JT Daniels, you know, life plan for the last couple of years. So this this there's a lot of intrigue here, I think, between this love triangle between JT Daniels, Keaton Slovis, and USC. A hundred percent, hundred percent. So I mean that that all of that alone. For this this game is on Thursday, 
at four o'clock. So there's not a lot of other, you know, games competing with it. So, you know, there's just, I think, uh, some real intrigue beyond just the rivalry of these two schools getting back together uh, because of the connection of these two quarterbacks. So obviously Pitt's favored to win this game. They're ranked number 17. West Virginia is rebuilding, but do you, are you predicting a win for, for Pitt or do you think that vulnerability and that puffed up ranking are going to be exposed in week one? Yeah. Pitt is a seven and a half point favorites. I'll take West Virginia. I, th- I yeah, I think Pitt overrated. I'm, I think the Mountaineers, uh, go into this and I you know I think in in a rivalry situation the, the rivalry ended because Pitt basically left the league left West Virginia alone in this league uh, and so I kind of like the school that got spurned to come back and win when when the rivalry gets renewed you know it kind of feels right to me to, so I I will be rooting for West Virginia you can say that you know maybe that doesn't uh, turn the tables but that's who I'm going to be rooting for I love it. I love it. Well, I will, I will agree with you that I am rooting for West Virginia. I, I'm going to pick Pitt, uh, but it, it could be a, a really fun game to watch, and I'll, I'll be tuning in, tuning in for sure. So then we've got um, the is this I believe on is this on Saturday? Yeah, same time as Oregon and Georgia, number twenty three Cincinnati at number nineteen Arkansas. So you've got this up-and-coming Cincinnati team that has really made a mark on the college football landscape over the last few years. But going on the road in the SEC against a higher-ranked Arkansas team without Desmond Ritter at the quarterback position, uh, what are your thoughts about this uh, You know, game between two ranked opponents in week one? Yeah, well, last year, Cincinnati marked themselves as a playoff contender by beating Notre Dame early in the season when Notre Dame was really good. And that kind of legitimated, le- legitimized everything that Cincinnati did going forward. This is the toughest game on their schedule this year. And this is not beating a top five Notre Dame team, but it's beating a top 20 SEC team. And so if Cincinnati has any hope of kind of continuing you know, as kind of the new Boise State, this, you know, the the school that is, you know, taken the most seriously outside of a major conference, then they've got to take care of business against Arkansas. Meanwhile, for Arkansas, you know, you talk about a brutal schedule. They open the season with Cincinnati. They play Texas A&M and Alabama in back-to-back weeks. They play BYU in a non-conference game. Then they've, of course, got the schools like Auburn and LSU and Ole Miss and Mississippi State. Just a brutal schedule for Arkansas. And so even if they're really good, they could, you know, be like a six and six type team just because of the nature of this schedule. So important for them to try to get off to a good win. I I like Arkansas playing at home. I think Cincinnati lost mm-hmm. a lot of talent. Yeah. And uh, I think they're going to come back to earth a little bit. And I think Arkansas is able to take care of business at home. I agree. I, you know, when you're a, an Alabama or a, a Georgia or an LSU, Florida, those kind of teams, you can replace star players with other star players fairly easily. But a Cincinnati, when you've got a special player like Desmond Ritter, uh, you don't just have another guy. You know, you don't have Tua Tagovailoa. Jalen Hurts and Mac Jones all on the same team 
at one time. So I, I don't think, uh, not to say that Cincinnati couldn't be good by the end of the season, but I think on the road in the SEC at Arkansas, I'm giving this game to Arkansas. I think they're going to just be too much. Uh, and and even just even the heat and and uh, the conditions, I think, will will play into that as well. So I'm going to give that to Arkansas. Next game up, this is probably the game that I personally am most excited about uh, outside of Husky football this Same. weekend. And that is Utah going to the swamp to play the University of Florida Gators. And, uh, you know, this Florida team, is, they're, they're not ranked. Uh, in fact, Utah comes in as the ranked team at number seven. But I think this is an extremely important game, not just for Utah, but for the Pac-12. I think the Pac-12 really needs to win a game like this uh, where Utah comes in and, and, and shows – that they are a legitimate playoff contender that's ready to, to, to take that mantle. And I think we'll, you know, we'll legitimize the PAC 12 and also legitimize USC and, and the battle that they have later in the season as well. I, I agree with everything you just said. I have major concerns about this game for for Utah. This reminds, or they remind me a little bit of Iowa State last year. Iowa State came in last year very highly ranked, kind of considered a fringe playoff contender because they were coming off of a great season and they had a ton of guys coming back. And it was kind of like, make way for Iowa State. And in general when you have these teams that aren't necessarily blue bloods that have a historically good season, it's very hard for them to repeat. A lot of things had to go right for them to have that historically good season. It's hard to have that happen two years in a row. Iowa state with that same talent on the roster went seven and five last year. I don't think Utah is going to go seven and five, but I, but I'm not sure that everything goes right for Utah the way it went for them last year. And this is a perfect example of the ways in which it could go wrong. A road game against an SEC team that is coming off of a down year, has a new coaching staff, all of the energy and juice that we talked about with, mm-hmm. with Dan Lanning and Kalen DeBoer coming in and energizing these two programs that we're rooting for. Florida fans have got to be feeling the same way about Billy Napier coming in there and 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 giving everyone a jolt there and so i just think this is a really tough game and it's and it's kind of uh it's a game that like if they go in and they're competitive and they lose it doesn't look good because florida's unranked florida may end the season ranked in the top 10 or the top 15 but for now if utah loses that game it, it really makes it hard for them to to stay up there in the national picture uh in the near term so a lot riding on this game for the Utes. I will be pulling for them as uh, just kind of pulling for the conference brethren here. Yeah. Uh, I'm pulling for them, but pulling for them with some real nervousness. No, I get the nervousness, but you know, this, obviously it's a new, new team with Billy Napier, but this Florida team over the last few years, they've had a lot of games where they've played well, but ended up losing and uh, I could I could definitely see that happening again in this scenario. The weather's certainly going to play a factor. This is this is the kind of conditions that 
you just cannot prepare for if you're Utah in the beginning of September. But I think what gives me greater confidence is that, number one, they've got a starting quarterback who really was the best quarterback in the Pac-12 at the end of the year last year. They've got a solid running game. We know about Kyle Whittingham and his ability to play great defense and great special teams. And if you look at the track record, Mark, of how Kyle Whittingham has performed in bowl games and big games, he's got a really great track record. Obviously, we know they lost to Ohio State narrowly in the Rose Bowl last year. But, I mean, really, that had more to do with the fact that they had a lack of personnel in the defensive backfield uh, in that game than it was that they were not well coached and prepared to win that game. Um, so I'm giving this game to Utah. And I think I I think this has been building and it's been brewing with the Utah Utes for several years now. And I don't think they're going to miss out on this opportunity to really make their mark and to say, hey, Utah is a legitimate program. And the back the Pac-12 is a legitimate a conference. And I, I mean, in many ways, I think both of us need to, to put our hopes on how Utah does this year, because, uh, you know, if Oregon, let's say Oregon, you know, makes it to the, the conference championship game and beats uh, a, a 10 and one, 11 and one Utah, that's going to only bolster their, you know, their, credibility uh, across the nation as well yeah you're absolutely right about that and there are a lot of of marquee games that pac-12 teams are going to be involved in over the next few weeks that are going to kind of shape the narrative around at the conference so right. utah being the kind of the flag holder right now it would be great to see them start things off with a win but to your point i mean that's a game that it can't lose utah's ranked florida's not they got to win that game Again, if Oregon loses to to Georgia, it's not a a bad narrative for the Pac-12, but Washington needs to win their game against Michigan State. Uh, Obviously, we're going to talk about this game in just a second, but Oregon State and Boise State, Oregon State needs to win that game for the Pac-12. But let's talk about the next one. This is probably, you know, I, I said that the game that I'm most excited about is Utah, Florida. But probably the most uh, you know marquee game of the weekend is number five Notre Dame against num- or at number two Ohio State, and um, obviously this is a game that from the get go is going to potentially determine whether or not a, one of these teams is able to qualify for the college football playoffs. So this is this is prime time. What what is your take? Do you, you know, I would think that Ohio State is clearly the favorite for this game, um, especially after Notre Dame has lost Brian Kelly. But, um, you know, we saw Oregon go into Ohio State last year, pull off an upset, and certainly Notre Dame's got the, the talent to do the same thing. Do you, I mean, what are your thoughts about this game? Yeah, I think uh, 
the Ohio State is favored similarly to the way Georgia's favored over Oregon. They're 17 and a half point favorites over Notre Dame right now. So uh, I think for Notre Dame, you know, uh, Marcus Freeman, their coach, kind of said when somebody referenced that to uh, to him in an interview, he said, well, I'll be, t- I'll be talking to the team about that. Like they're going to use that as motivation is, mm-hmm. you know, nobody thinks that we've got a chance in this game. Uh, I think with a first time head coach, it, you know, they're in a similar situation to Oregon playing Georgia where it's like, Hey, we want to see you show up and compete. If you lose this game to Ohio state, it doesn't necessarily write you off for the rest of the season. And if you look at the rest of Notre Dame's schedule, Notre Dame typically plays a pretty good schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, They've got, you know, BYU later in the year, they've got Clemson later in the year, they've got USC later in the year they're going to have more opportunities to get back into the conversation. Um, even if they, they come up short against Ohio state, but it's a landmark win if they can pull mm-hmm. it off, you know, that's the type of win that really carries for you. Uh, I just don't see it happening. I think Ohio state is so loaded this year. I think they're, you know, right there with Alabama in terms of the national title, you know, top contenders. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how Notre Dame competes, but ultimately I'm, I'm expecting Ohio state to win pretty comfortably. Yeah. I mean, we know that Ohio state's got a Heisman candidate and CJ Stroud. Um, but you know, they are replacing a couple of, you know, highly drafted wide receivers in Chris Olave and, uh, Garrett Miller, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, we know that they're deep, they're talented, but it could take a little while for those newer guys to feel fully worked into the system. So maybe there's a little chink in the armor, but um, I don't know if I would take the spread on this game, but I would take the straight up uh, prediction of Ohio State beating Notre Dame. Okay. So next up, we talked about uh, Boise State and Oregon State. Um, so Mark, just any, any, uh, is there anything about this game that stands out to you? I mean, it's two, you know, mid-level teams that both have a case for being potentially able to win this game. Uh, but what is your gut telling you? I'm, I'm really interested just to see how the Beavers look. I think they're going to be a scrappy a scrappy team this year that I think. Um, All right, time out, time out. So over the last 40 years, how many years do you think that the word scrappy has been used to describe the Beavers by the big brother, Oregon Ducks? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, isn't that Oregon State every single year is, yeah. oh yeah, they're, they're not very good but they're yeah. scrappy. They're feisty. They're scrappy. They're, uh, you know, um, I guess, let me, let me rephrase it. I think Jonathan Smith has the Beavers on a really nice trajectory. Yeah. And I think they're, uh, you know, last year they were one of the few PAC 12 teams to beat Utah. Uh, so yeah. like they're, you know, they beat Oregon the year before that, like they're moving in a really nice. They beat direction. Washington last year. Yeah. Not a big surprise, but they did. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is a season where they start the year with Boise State and Fresno State back to back. Yeah. Then they they have uh, Montana State, which you know you figure should be a win. 
and then they kick off conference play with USC and Utah. Mm-hmm. So they have no margin for error, you know, to kind of wait to get rolling with the season. Like either Boise State or Fresno State could definitely beat the Beavers. And then starting off conference play with USC and Utah, they might be out of Pac-12 contention two weeks into the into conference play um, without having played Washington or Oregon yet. So a really, really tough schedule this year for the Beavers. And I'm just kind of interested. This is a program that's had a nice trajectory how do they handle having, you know, two games back to back to start the year against um, some really tough mid majors? Uh, can, can they kind of get off to a nice start and enter into that USC game with some momentum of having already played and beaten a couple of good teams? So there is, you know, something on the line just in terms of getting off to a good start and establishing some momentum for the season, because, you know, the Beavers might be a pretty good one in four team if things don't break right for them to start the season. So I think, I think there's a lot riding on this, this opener with Boise state, who's probably the weakest of those four teams compared to Fresno, USC, and Utah. No, I agree. And I think, I think this Oregon state team, their offense with Jonathan Smith, they have the, the capacity to be, I would say a top six offense in the pack 12 which is that's pretty good um the the question is are they going to be better than a bottom three defense in the pack 12 yeah i think if they can if they can be the the sixth seventh or eighth best defense along with that offense um they're gonna win those boise state and fresno state games but they're going to have to have help from both sides. The offense is is not explosive enough to cover the defensive deficiencies, but if the defense can just be better than below average, then I think that they've got enough that they could really come out on top in some of these games. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to watch. That's you know the nightcap opposite Washington and Kent State. So uh, my hope is is that either Washington jumps out to the big lead that you're talking about, and I can just focus on on Oregon State and Boise State without having to do much flipping, or or Washington starts the Kent State game like they did the Montana game, and then I'm fully invested in that game, and I'm just checking in on on uh, the Beavers occasionally, <laughs> but. Um, Either way, uh, that it, that's a good uh, that's a good Saturday night game to have uh, for Pac-12 after dark uh, opposite the the Washington Kent State game. I love it. I love it. All right, last game, and we'll wrap this thing up. So Florida State at LSU. Uh, both teams are teams that you know you hear the name Florida State, you hear the name LSU, and you think really good football teams, but. Yeah. These have not been really good football teams in the last year or two or longer for Florida State in that regard. But it seemed like Florida State was maybe starting to turn the corner a little bit last year, and then things kind of nosedived again. Uh, LSU, they've got former Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly leading the charge, doing his awkward photo shoots with recruits and uh, you know, trying to to build a new identity uh, in in his image, but um, 
you know, I, I mean, I think if, with this game, is there is there anything that would kind of surprise you about this game? You know, if, if LSU wins, would you be surprised? If Florida State wins, would you be surprised? What would what would kind of surprise you about this game? I would be more surprised uh, by Florida State looking really good because I think, uh, first of all, LSU is only, what, like two years removed from a national championship, and then things yeah. just went totally south on Ed Orgeron. They bring in Brian Kelly, who is an established coach, who granted there's been all these offseason antics, but like, you know, delivered Notre Dame to the playoff multiple times like a guy that obviously knows what he's doing as a football coach. And yeah. one would think it's only a matter of time before he gets LSU, you know, tracking in the right direction. And I'm just assuming that talent wise, there's players there, you know, the, yeah. the, there's the raw materials are there and neither of these teams are ranked going into the season, but I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if, if LSU is ranked in the top 15 by the time the season ends, like just because, right. Uh, you would figure they've got talent and they've got coaching and those two things are going to produce results on the Florida state side. They have been such a train wreck now for the last several years that I wouldn't necessarily be shocked if they win this game, just because I think sooner or later, they're going to have to figure it out and, and become a decent team again. Uh, last year, if you remember in their season opener, they had a great game against Notre Dame that kind of signaled Oh, maybe they're ready to to compete this year, and then and then things just kind of fell out from underneath them after that. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they're competitive. It's a nationally televised game on Sunday night. It's the only game people are going to be watching. But it would really shock me if they just put the hammer down. If they if they win by three touchdowns and they just kind of look like a team that's ready to compete with with Clemson for the ACC title. Like I I don't think that were there yet with Florida state, it seems like that's a lot to ask of this year's team. So I think that would be the most surprising result. Whereas if LSU won by three touchdowns, I would say, well, it's just further sign that Florida state is a dumpster fire still. Right. Right. Well, you know, you talked about coaching changes and uh, so a couple questions and, and then we'll wrap this up. But first of all, with, with the addition of Brian Kelly, that, gives you this idea that there's going to be a boost maybe not in game one but that by the end of the season you're going to really see a program that's moving in a great direction and yet I, I look at the fact that Notre Dame is ranked number five in the nation they've got a brand new coach Oregon you know is ranked they've got a brand new coach what's the what's kind of the is there a logical inconsistency in some of this where it's like, you know, it, we assume that a great coach coming to a team with a solid talent foundation is going to make a big difference, but we're also not assuming that a brand new coach with no coaching experience is not going to significantly hinder their team in the early, you know, stages of, of the program. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you know, Nick Saban in his first year at Alabama lost to Louisiana Monroe. <laughs> so, um, so we can just recognize that bringing in the perfect coach may right. not bear immediate results. Um, 
I think in the case of, of Notre Dame or Oregon, it seems like there is some excitement uh, or energy because it seems like there's a pretty good nucleus intact and, and you're bringing in guys that seem to have kind of an energetic personality. Whereas um, Oklahoma hired Brent Venables who has a lot of energy, Mm -hmm. but they lost a lot of players in the wake of Riley's departure. And so that's a program that I don't think a lot of people are saying, Oh, well, the new coaching staff is really going to give Oklahoma a boost this year. I think there's more some kind of concern about what this year might look like for Oklahoma because of, of just kind of the state that the roster's in. I don't think that's necessarily a reflection that Brent Venables is not as good of a coach as Dan Lanning or Marcus Freeman is perceived to be, but more that he's stepping into a little bit different situation that, um, that the results may not be there right off the bat. It actually wouldn't surprise me if Brent Venables is the better long-term coach than, than either Dan Lanning or, or Marcus Freeman. So I, th- I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is kind of tied to, you know, with Washington, it's things couldn't get any worse than they were last year with Jimmy Lake. So just having a new coach who seems to have their act together, you know, gives you a sense of, of, of confidence. Um, but clearly if you look at a place like Florida state first with Willie Taggart and now with Mike Norvell, bringing in a new coach didn't solve anything like in, in fact seems to have made things worse. You know, Auburn is another school where it seems like, you know, the coaching change that they made uh, getting rid of Gus Malzahn and bringing in Brian Harson, And now the fan base is up in arms and uh, wants Brian Harson to be out of a job. So um, that certainly can play out that way over time, but I think it's natural before any games have been played to just, to have some sense of optimism about how it's going to work out, you know? Yeah. And then when, if your team goes and, and they lay an egg in the first game, uh, then that turns into, oh gosh, does this guy really have it? You know, he didn't have them, have them ready to play. But I think it makes sense for a lot of these schools to have, um, you know, we, I, we have a record number of marquee universities that are breaking in first time head coaches this season. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, across the board, whether it's Miami or USC or, you know, any of these places, there's, there's a sense of excitement just in having, having someone new that maybe they can do something that the previous, previous regime couldn't. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. It just, it's an interesting kind of comparison that we assume that a great coach is going to make a, a, a lackluster, but talented program do better but then we're also saying, oh yeah, we've got this talented program that's getting that's breaking in a brand new coach, but it's not going to make any difference in the expectation for the season at all. But last question, and you you know you mentioned Mike Norvell, you mentioned Florida State, they've been on a rocky road the last several years. Is there a scenario where you could see Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, as the head coach at Florida State University? And if that did happen, would that be exciting for you? So I, I don't like rooting for guys to get fired. I think that's sure. one of the, the parts of college football that just kind of always seems a little unseemly, like the hot seat index of like, we're, we're going to try to predict the first coach fired or something like that. Like I'm never rooting for someone to get fired. Uh, at the same time, like, I guess I am rooting for some scenario to work out whereby Deion Sanders 
could become the coach at Florida State uh, just because he is such a character and it would just be so much more fun to have him in the mix. You know, so many yeah. of, the, of the coaches across the board right now are so buttoned up with everything that they do and everything right. that they say. And I, I mean, I don't feel like we've had a coach who just let it rip since like Steve Spurrier, you know, right. like, I mean, I mean, he was, uh, he was the guy who, uh, when there was a fire in the Auburn library, the week of the game that Florida was going to play Auburn, Spurrier was asked about it. And he said, well, and the real shame about it is, is most of the books hadn't even been colored in yet. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, and that was just Steve Spurrier, like uh, on the yeah. norm, he was always just kind of firing off these little one lines. Yeah. Deion Sanders would bring that kind of energy where you're always kind of like looking to see, oh, what did Deion say next? What did Deion do next? It, um, you know, it's funny because Deion, I think he's got, he's got that reputation of, you know, he was the guy that was thinking about NIL before NIL was a reality, but he branded himself as prime time. He had, you know, the Jerry curls. He had the, the, the gold chains. He associated himself with the Atlanta rap culture. Uh, and then of course became a hall of fame, um, you know, star. Obviously he had his baseball career as well, which only elevated his uh, name recognition across the country. Uh, him along with Bo Jackson, the only guys that really did that uh, successfully. But what's interesting to me about, about the coach prime that, that, you know, is today is that he's actually a guy that has a lot of sage wisdom yeah. and um, he's not just kind of a, a hot shot pop, you know, pop off at the mouth type of thing, but he's a guy that's got this unique combination of swag and sage wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that could really be a fun combination where he's going to say things that in a way that make you go, oh, whoa, he just said something controversial. But then when you actually stop to think about it, you're like, oh, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, he's he's kind of figured out a lane and um, and it's working for him you know, and oh, he's, yeah. Big he's time. attracting players and he's building a brand and guys are buying in and it's working. Now it's working at Jackson state. That's a different place right. than Florida state. Uh, and as we've seen with, with Scott Frost at Nebraska, you know, bringing home kind of a favored son who's had a lot of success mm -hmm. at a smaller school and then bringing them home to kind of lead you back to your former glory. Easier said than done. Like, um, yeah you know, and it can be a really uncomfortable situation when that guy comes back and doesn't get the job done, you know, and nobody would want to see Deion Sanders fail at Florida State, you know, no. uh, but having said all that, of course, I would sign up for it in a heartbeat, like just because of the entertainment value across the board, I think it would be, it would be fantastic. Well, Mark, there's no doubt about it. We are both excited for college football. This may have been the longest podcast we've done in a long time, but I'm here for it. And I know you are too. Thank you everybody listening who listened to this podcast and continue to support the dog and duck show. We are really excited to get into 
really the reason why we did this show to begin with to talk dog and duck uh husky and oregon football and uh, we're excited about what this season holds so i'm gonna wrap things up and say to all my dog fans out there go dogs and i'm gonna say to all my duck fans go ducks we'll be back next week one of us will be happy one of us will be sad or maybe a little bit of both we'll see (laughs) catch you next time (laughs) 